When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah, who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived at Tapanhes. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Tapanhes. Take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tapanhes in the sight of the men of Judah and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden and he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence, those who are doomed to the pestilence, to captivity, those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword, those who are doomed to the sword. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive, and he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin, and he shall go away from there in peace." He shall break the obelisks of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire. We read that far in God's word. The theme of this message is arrogance, pride. It's in all of us. Don't be thinking of someone else. Think of yourself. Arrogance is when we view God as a power to enlist for our cause rather than a Lord for us to obey his cause and his voice. So we've seen this pride already in several chapters. Uh, within this phrase, we've studied and seen as a repeated theme, not listening. And I referred to the Hebrew word shema. They were not shema, not hearing, not obeying God. Arrogance is seen in that. When we claim that God is on our side and against others, Arrogance causes a cascade of damage, so I've called the sermon the aftermath of arrogance. The, the group of chapters that we're now studying, in chapters 40 through 45, tell the story about how Old Testament Israel could continue even after it seemed to die in the year 586. How is their continuation after complete destruction of the city, complete destruction of the temple, and carrying people off into exile? The only way that there's continuing of the people of God is by God providing through his word. Now, those who were brought into exile in Babylon took prophets with them. Their names, for example, Daniel, Ezekiel. So they still had the word of God even as they went off into exile in Babylon. 
And in our chapter today, we see another feature of God being merciful and providing his word, that even those who went off into Egypt in strict disobedience took a prophet with them. His name? Our own Jeremiah. He went into a sort of exile in Egypt with these disobedient people. What's the significance? People over in Babylon in exile have the word of God. People down in Egypt in their self-proclaimed exile have the word of God. The significance is that God continues to speak to arrogant sinners to provide clear instructions to his people even in places of deep sin such as so much sin that God needed to put them into exile in Babylon, that God would continue to speak to his people even when they disobeyed him and went to Egypt. Egypt, for those who are Bible readers, Egypt should sound familiar. Egypt and God giving his word to his people in Egypt. Yes, God spoke through the prophet Moses in Egypt, and here God will speak through the prophet Jeremiah in Egypt. Egypt, that he's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all the heavens and the earth, and he's the God over every nation, and that he can speak in Babylon, and he can speak in Egypt, and he can speak to his people who are disobedient and distant. What should we call it when God's people don't listen to God's word? One thing we can call it is arrogance. So my main point of this sermon, arrogance leads to rejecting God's word, self-deception, disobedience, and destruction, and we need God's grace of rescue and salvation. So first we'll see how those who rejected God's word entered self-deception, made false accusations, disobeyed God, and took God's prophet captive into Egypt, verses 1 through 7. Then we'll see how even in Egypt the Lord gave his word and even an object lesson, verses 8 to 10. And then we'll see in the final verses of the chapter, verses 11 to 13, my third point, how God said he would use Babylon to destroy Egypt. So back to our first point now, those who rejected God's word went into this downward spiral. Even though the people had promised in chapter 42 to abide by whatever instructions God had for them and sent Jeremiah to pray, and 10 days later the answer came, remember from chapter 42, they promised they would obey no matter what the answer back from God was, but they did not abide by God's instructions when those clear instructions came because the instruction was stay in the land, don't go to Egypt. They promptly rejected God's word. How do we know? From the first two verses of our chapter now, chapter 43, verse 1, Jeremiah just finished speaking the word of the Lord to all the people. Then two men, Azariah and our character we've come to know, Johanan, those two and the other leaders responded. We're told something about these men that I don't want you to miss in verse 2. We're told something about Azariah, about Johanan, and the other men around them in verse 2. We're told that, and your, your great translation here, English Standard Version says, they were insolent men. The word insolent here is another word for arrogant. That's where I get the title of the message, arrogant men. It comes from a root word which means to boil up. It's the reaction to God's word that's boiling up from deep within them, insolence or anger or arrogance, and that is the response that they had to the prophet Jeremiah bringing them God's word. The request that they had for Jeremiah to pray for them, they waited the 10 days and they promised to obey whatever the answer back was, 
After 10 days, the answer finally comes back, and boiling up from within them comes this arrogant answer. God's word came, and they said, It's a lie! Are you sensing the power? We're supposed to pause and realize the scene as we unfold these verses. That's how we know that they promptly rejected God's word, because as soon as Jeremiah said it, they said, It's a lie. It's a picture of you. It's a picture of me. When our desires are contrary to God's command and God's word, our tendency to deny God's words outright like that, even so clear as to say it's a lie, find their origin in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent first appealed to the arrogance of humans, when the serpent created doubt about God's words, in Genesis 3, verse 1, we read, He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? End quote, Genesis 3, 1. And just three verses later, the serpent gets bolder. And he says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. A direct opposition to the statement of God that you will surely die. The serpent says, you will not surely die. An arrogant and direct contradiction to the statement of the Almighty God. And the serpent went farther when the serpent made rebellion appear attractive with this lie. Quote, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. End quote. That is an ever so appealing lie to our prideful hearts, but it's simply not true. You being like God, knowing good and evil, as much as or maybe even better than God knows, is an attractive lie. Rather than our eyes being opened by sin, our eyes will be darkened by sin, and we'll see things less clearly and less clearly. Adam and Eve rejected God's word. So did Johanan. So do you, so do I. That's our problem. And back to our study of Jeremiah 43, what's interesting now is that previously in chapter 40, when this Johanan had given a warning to Governor Gedaliah about an assassination plot, remember that? The translation of the original words is exactly the same as here. It is a lie, Governor Gedaliah had said to Johanan. Fast forward to our passage where... Now Johanan is the one saying that phrase to Jeremiah, it is a lie. He wouldn't believe Jeremiah, just like Gedaliah wouldn't believe Johanan. What's, what's the proof? How do we settle the case? Is Jeremiah lying or is Jeremiah telling the truth? What would be the way that we would determine that? The proof of Jeremiah telling the truth is, according to God's word in Deuteronomy 18.22, the proof of how a prophet is known to be telling the truth is that whatever the prophet predicts later comes true. Okay, so let's evaluate Jeremiah real fast. Jeremiah predicted the invasion of Jerusalem came true. Case closed. We ought to believe Jeremiah, right, Johanan? So it's incredible and ill-advised that Johanan was now calling Jeremiah a liar and calling God a liar. The Babylonian invasion and the fall of Jerusalem should have served as incontrovertible proof that Jeremiah was a true prophet of God, speaking God's truth, and Johanan, you better stand down and listen. What was the supposed lie that Johanan's reacting so strongly to? 
The supposed lie is that God instructed the people to stay in the land and not flee to Egypt. These arrogant men, and I'm picking on Johanan in particular, flatly denied that the Lord had sent Jeremiah to dissuade them from fleeing to Egypt. In Johanan's arrogance, he now suspected a conspiracy plot by Jeremiah, his assistant Baruch, to keep Johanan in the land in order that the king of Babylon could arrive and kill Johanan. He suspected this giant, murderous conspiracy plot. But is that true? This has turned into a test of how much confidence the arrogant Johanan would have in God's word. Verse 3, Johanan falsely accused Baruch, the assistant of Jeremiah, as setting this all up. Johanan was saying Jeremiah was a puppet of the mastermind Baruch. That was a lie developed from a growing suspicion which was unfounded. Verse 4, the sad and descending situation was such that because of their arrogance, Johanan and all those around him would not listen to the voice of the Lord. That's said in so many words in verse 4, would not listen to the voice of the Lord. They would not remain in the land. So verse 5, Johanan gathered what people were left. Verse 6, the men, women, children, and even Jeremiah himself and his assistant Baruch we're told in verse 7 that they all went to Egypt because, again, they arrogantly would not listen to the Lord. And again, notice now in verse 6, their arrogance even resulted in a silly scene in which they were bringing the faithful prophet Jeremiah himself right along with them. He's in their company while they're running away from God. The prophet's right there. Isn't that silly? Isn't that ironic? By rejecting God's instructions and then, in addition, by taking Jeremiah along with them while they reject God's instructions, they're making things worse because actually they're kidnapping the prophet of God. They're taking Jeremiah captive not to Babylon in obedience, but rather to a different foreign land, one with quite a history, Egypt. Rather than being concerned about the reaction of King of Babylon to kill them because of killing Gedaliah, they should be concerned about the reaction of the Lord God for their arrogance, for their disobedience, and for their kidnapping of his prophet Jeremiah. What would God do should be on their minds. Let me pause here before we go to our second point and bring in the Lord Jesus. This all points to Christ. Fast forward to that time of the Lord Jesus. What did the apostle Peter say to the crowd who had crucified Jesus on that day after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the teaching on earth, after his ascension to heaven and the Holy Spirit had come down, now in Acts chapter 2. What did Peter say to the crowd? Let me read a few select verses out of Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus, Peter says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Acts 2. So the very one that they crucified 
is the only name by which they would be forgiven by God for that very action. They must turn to God through Jesus, who is the Word of God. And similarly in our passage, it was Johanan who must turn to God through Jeremiah's prophesying of the Word of God, but Johanan refused. And we move on to our second point. Even in Egypt, the Lord gave his word. So here we are in verse 8. The Lord gave to Jeremiah not just the word, but also an object lesson. You know, when the audience was slower to pick up God's point, slower to obey God throughout the book of Jeremiah, it always seems like Jeremiah turns to an object lesson, which is almost humorous in the way that these object lessons are so clear. If you miss the words, Look at the lesson, because the object lesson points to it. So verse 9, it was large stones to be hidden in the pavement. What is the significance of that? We're told in verse 10, the meaning is that God will send Nebuchadnezzar there to Egypt, and Nebuchadnezzar's throne will be placed upon those stones in the pavement, right there in front of the palace of Pharaoh in Egypt. The throne of the foreign king of Babylon will be placed That's the object lesson. Now think, Bible students, where have we heard about Nebuchadnezzar and a stone? Nebuchadnezzar and stone. Isn't it in Daniel chapter 2 where there's this dream of Nebuchadnezzar? He dreams, but he demands his astrologers tell him not only the interpretation, but what the dream itself is. He wants the content of the dream told to him, But he remembers, but he wants you to tell him. And then he wants the interpretation of that dream. And God gave both only to Daniel. So Daniel says to this Nebuchadnezzar, the point of the dream is God removes kings and God sets up kings. The point of the dream is that God is the king over all kings and all kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed about himself. A giant statue made of various materials. And then a stone came and broke down the statue. The stone was cut out by no human hand, showing that it was an object lesson of God, his kingdom, the power from another place. And the stone that broke the statue into pieces, then the stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, showing the spreading of God's kingdom around the the world as he will build his kingdom. The stone showed, as we read read in Daniel 2.44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Nebuchadnezzar and a stone. The kingdom of God and a stone. Now, fast forward. I told you it all points to Jesus, right? Where have you heard about a stone having a central role in God's kingdom? Fast forward to a time later in Jerusalem where God's kingdom would bring God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Though Caesar thought he was king, would the people follow Jesus instead of Caesar? Now we tune in to John 19, verse 11. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called, you know what it was called? The Stone Pavement. And in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. 
So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. John 19, 11 to 16. It's the point is that Jesus is the king and that all others are a threat and that it's the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy regarding the stone pavement that takes place in the life of Jesus. So fast forward again, and after he's crucified, it would seem that God's kingdom had come to an end, wouldn't it, with the death of the king himself. He's even buried. The Lord Jesus Christ, the king, is buried. Isn't that the end of the king and the end of the kingdom? And what's rolled in front of the tomb? A stone. Isn't that fascinating? Pilate orders that the stone be sealed with a Roman seal. So the Caesar seal is over the end of this king and kingdom. And you would think that's the end of the story. And it just points out how the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is central to all that we are and all that we believe. Because Jesus not only came out of the tomb, quite without the help of the stone being removed away, but also sent his angel to roll the stone away, sit on it, and then declare that people can access this tomb in order for them to receive the object lesson. The stone is rolled away. The king of kings arose. The stone, again, just an object lesson. So even in Egypt, God can give his word and an object lesson. We move to our third last point. God said he would use Babylon to destroy Egypt. So we're back to our story. Verse 11, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would come into Egypt under Pharaoh and attack it. Verse 12, God himself would strike a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt and burn them and carry them away captive. It could refer to even the gods themselves being carried away. What does that sound like? Since God was willing to destroy his own temple in Jerusalem and take his own people away captive, why wouldn't God be willing to destroy the temples of false gods in Egypt and take their false gods and their people away captive. So the victory of Nebuchadnezzar over Egypt, according to verse 12, would be as effortless as a shepherd wrapping himself in a garment. And the word wrap here has double meaning. So not only to wrap oneself with the garment, but almost as if you will wrap the garment, as it were, to shake it out, to get rid of lice or mice. Uh, Cover yourself with a coat is the same kind of word to wrap your coat. So twice the wrapping, it suggests that Nebuchadnezzar would easily plunder the Egyptians, taking away their gold and silver, and walk away in peace without much resistance from the army of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even suffer much of a loss of troops because it was all God's doing. Verse 13, God would allow Nebuchadnezzar to demolish the religious pillars in the temple of the city and the city of the sun. The Temple of the Sun and the City of the Sun, Egypt was a center of sun worship, about 10 miles northeast of what we call Cairo, Egypt. History tells us this all came true. Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt in the 37th year of his reign, the year 568, when Pharaoh Amasis was on the throne in Egypt. It's clear that Egypt remained in its independence and did not become part of the Babylonian Empire at that point. It's also clear that Egypt established a somewhat friendly relationship with Babylon going forward. Babylon had halted Egypt's interference in the ambitions of Babylon, but we know from our chapter what God was doing in it all. God was disciplining people who would not obey his voice. God was dealing with arrogant sinners. He was vindicating a faithful prophet, Jeremiah, who had warned people and warned people and warned people from Jerusalem not to go to Egypt And then he warned them from Egypt itself. Our God is merciful. Our God is patient. 
Our God is willing to upend the world in order to rescue his people from our own arrogance and to continue to show us mercy. My conclusion, then I'll have some application finer points. The conclusion is this. The title of the sermon is Aftermath of Arrogance, but that's not the end of the story. That's not the gospel. That's just the presentation of the sin problem. God, in his grace, sent his son Jesus to die for our sin of arrogance and to clean up the aftermath from our sin of arrogance. Listen again to what we read earlier in our worship service, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, section 5. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. End quote, Westminster Confession, chapter 11, section 5. Just a man-made document, and what a summary of the Bible's teaching. The call to repent does not mean we're left to redeem ourselves. God redeems us by his grace. God humbles us by his grace. So the rest of the story after our arrogance has caused a bad aftermath is that there's a good aftermath. There's a good result caused by God and his grace humbling us. So I have three finer application points of how that works. Number one, the aftermath of being humbled by God's grace is that we accept God's will for our suffering and redemption. We accept God's will for our suffering and redemption. Here in chapter 43, the people called God's word lies. How do you come down off that? Sometimes God wants us to stay in place even when it seems like there's tremendous danger there. He wanted them to stay in place and trust in him, not flee to Egypt to get out from under the danger of the king of Babylon, but stay where you are and look to God to get out from under the danger of the king of Babylon. God wanted them to stay in the land, what he called the land of promise, and never leave for Egypt, never turn to the world, never turn to something else. We will submit ourselves to God's will for our suffering and for our redemption because he has the plan, he has the grace. Sometimes God wants us to stay in place, face the affliction, look to him for strength, and not escape it. When Peter presented an escape for the Lord Jesus, thanks be to God that his reply was to stay on task. What did Jesus say to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. Let me read the surrounding verses. Matthew 16, 21. Jesus began to show his disciples, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the scribes, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So the first application point is that the aftermath of being humbled by God's grace is we accept God's will for our suffering and for our redemption. Secondly, the aftermath of being humbled by God's grace is that we accept God's discipline and correction. We actually hunger for it. We hunger for his guidance. We hunger for his discipline. We hunger for his correction. We want it. We're really odd to the world in this way. We want God to fix us, correct us. We actually pray for it and watch 
for it. We crave it. Here in chapter 43, the people who foolishly rejected God's discipline and tried to escape the power of Babylon will be pursued by the power of Babylon even into the foreign land of Egypt. That ought to send a shiver of terror down our spines. And the truth is you can't escape God. Since we can't escape God, let's turn to him in the way that he says and do what he says. That's discipline. That's correction. Those from Jerusalem who had accepted God's discipline were sitting kind of comfortably in Babylon where you would think that they were in danger in Babylon. They were actually quite successful, doing well in exile in Babylon under God's care and protection for 70 years. But those who ran from God's discipline were now sitting in Egypt. You'd think safe in Egypt, right? Oh, no, not safe in Egypt because that very same king of Babylon was setting up a throne there and he's going to obliterate it easily. The lesson is the lesson of Jonah. You can't run from God's discipline and correction, so don't run from God's discipline and correction. Embrace it. Even ask for it. As we read earlier in Psalm 139, 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Take me out of this, Lord. This is asking for God to search us, find our arrogance, lead us out of it by his grace through Christ. That sort of praying is itself the result of God's grace humbling our hearts. And then the third and the last one, the aftermath of being humbled by God's grace is that we're confident of God's love for us. Since we cannot drift beyond the reach of God's judgment and God's word of warning, we also can't drift beyond the reach of God's love and care. You can't escape God's love and care. This chapter is about a God who still gives his word through Jeremiah to a people who had wandered out of the promised land into the forbidden Egypt after the clarity of chapter 42. The absolute clarity of chapter 42. They did it anyway, and God gives them the mercy of more of his word. It's the loving and patient heart of God. Seen reflected in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. We could say, while we were still arrogant, Christ died for us. And let me give an illustration of God's heart of love for us as arrogant sinners. I think it's so important that we have the right tone of what God's heart is. Out of parental concern and desire to teach their young son responsibility, a young father and mother required a boy in their home to phone home when he arrived at his friend's house, even though it was just a few blocks away. Phone home as soon as you get there, son. And the boy, after a couple trips, grew more confident in his ability to get safely to his friend's house. No trouble that he could see. So he developed a pattern of forgetting to call when he got there. First time he forgot, the father ended up telephoning himself from home to the friend's house and to be sure that his son had arrived safely. And while on the phone, he said, you don't mind, uh, could you put my son on the phone? So the father asked his son to get on the phone and was talking to his son. And he said, son... The next time you fail to call me, you're going to have to end your visit and come home immediately. I mean it about the phone call. A few days later, a boy goes to his friend's house, and the telephone lay silent again. The father's looking at his phone. He knew 
that if his son was going to learn, he would have to learn through discipline. But maybe you'll relate to this, parents. The father didn't want to discipline him. He didn't want his son to have to end the fun time with his friend because he hadn't listened to words. So the father, wanting to do what's right, goes to the phone, regretting that his son's fun time would be spoiled by his own lack of contact with his father. He dials the phone and he prays to his own heavenly father for wisdom in this moment. And the Lord seemed to say, you're a father, I'm your father, you're my son, treat your son like I treat you. With that, he hung up the phone. It had only rang one time. And he was reflecting on that when the phone rang. And he answered, and it was his son at his friend's house. I'm here, Dad. Yeah, okay, well, it's been a while. What, what took you so long to call? I, well, honestly, Dad, I was so happy to be here. We started playing right away. I, I forgot. But, Dad, then the phone rang once, and I remembered. How often do we wrongly think of our Heavenly Father as the one who wants to pounce and punish us when we step out of line? That's not who God is. Instead, God our Father has a heart of love and often lets it ring just once, prompting us to phone home. It's the contact with God that he desires. He wants us to walk with him. The aftermath of being humbled by God's grace is that we accept his will for our suffering and redemption. We accept his discipline and correction. We are confident in his love for us. We used to be those arrogant sinners, leaving behind a wake of damage. But then God's mercy and love has saved us by his grace, and now we leave behind a wake of healing and good, good works for the Lord. Ephesians 2, I'll end with this. All, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven,